Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Well, that was pretty awesome. The rest of the band, Blake, they sure do good. You know, you put a good enough frame on somebody, that picture look okay. Right, Blake? (laughs) Swindoll told this story. I thought it was so good. It's from something a guy wrote. He said, I'm 83 years old, and I was in the McDonald's drive-thru this morning. The lady behind me was leaning on her horn and started mouthing some ugly things because I was taking too long to place my order. So when I got to the first window, I paid for her order along with my own. The cashier must have told her what I had done because as I moved up, she leaned out her window and waved to me as she began mouthing, thank you, thank you, probably feeling embarrassed that I had repaid her rudeness with kindness. When I got to the second window, I showed the server both receipts, and I took her food too. (laughs) Now she has to go back to the end of the queue and start over again. Don't blow your horn at old people. We've been around a long time. (laughs) That's one of my favorite ones, you know. And I'm talking about forgiveness today, so this is not what we want to do, okay? Don't do this. (laughs) The truth is, I can talk about forgiveness, but I'm not so great at giving it. And that's why I'm so thankful that God is better at that than me. Let's get our Bibles out and go to John chapter 8, a very familiar story to a lot of people, the story of the woman caught in adultery. It's really the story of forgiveness. And it starts really in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared in the temple courts. Let me give you a little background on this. It's the Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Booths. It's one of the big celebrations in the Jewish calendar. It's one of the ones where everyone comes to Jerusalem. They build these uh, kind of crude little tents in the backyard, and everybody goes out and lives in that tent for seven days. And then on the last day, the eighth day, there's a big solemn assembly and festival, and so it's really a huge time. So the seventh day is over. Everybody's moved out of their booths, and it says at the end of chapter 7, they all went back to their homes. But, you know, Jesus, of course, didn't have a home, so he went to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, or not the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, and uh, spent the night there. Now it's dawn, you know, sun rising. He's in, in the temple again, and it says where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And so I imagine this kind of foggy, quiet morning. You know, this is, you know, J- Jerusalem, that area was on about the same latitude as as uh, Monroe, and so, you know, they're they're temperature and stuff would have been similar to ours. It's, and uh, so it's early morning, it's dawn, they might get the sea breeze and some fog in the morning, it's quiet and placid, and Jesus is in the temple in the area called the Court of the Gentiles, 
probably in a colonnaded porch called Solomon's Portico. And uh, he's teaching uh, these people about what it means to be forgiven and grace and all of that, because that's just what he taught and how the law applies to grace. When suddenly there's this commotion over and probably to his left, they probably came up through the south gates, and there's this noise and stuff going on and screaming and pleading and yelling, and they look up and there's these men that are dragging this woman. And, uh, you know, everybody's seen it before. This is no big surprise. They kind of know what's about to happen. This woman is in serious trouble. She has committed some private sin, and now they're going to put it on public display. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now it's dawn, so she's just been caught. And having set her in the center of the court, notice to maximize the humiliation, they put her in the very center of the court. I brought a, a graphic of the temple so you can see what it looks like. And there was this large outer court. The center area was where the temple rituals and sacrifice occurred. But in that large outer court, uh, that was called the Court of the Gentiles, and everybody, Gentile and Jew, could come there, and it was a busy, bustling place. So if you can imagine, they probably put her in the center on the left-hand side, where it was the biggest part to have the biggest impact. Jesus would have probably been teaching in Solomon's portico, which is at the bottom of the picture, kind of on the, if you turn it around, the east, it, it looks like the south, but that's really the east. and So it would be right proximity to Jesus. And so these guys are, they're really trying to make her look as bad as possible. Verse 4, and they said to him, teacher, and notice they use the word teacher, not the more respectful term rabbi. You know, so-called teacher. This woman's been caught in adultery, and notice, in the very act. I mean, there's no question at all, she's guilty. In fact, I would seriously doubt that they gave her time to get dressed. I, I think they barged in in the middle of it and they grabbed her and dragged her out just as she was. She probably grabbed a sheet or something to try to cover herself to be somewhat appropriate, but they don't care because she's exhibit A in their trial and they want to make sure that they present her just as she was found. We've got this woman. There's no question she's guilty. She's nothing to them. She's a piece of trash they collected for their scheme to trap Jesus. Now in the law of Moses, verse 5, now the, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now let's be clear. This is not about adultery. It's not about humanity. This is a terrorist attack on Jesus. This is 9-11. They're trying to bring Jesus down. Look at verse 6. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. You see, they knew Jesus loved people. And they knew he would give grace to sinners. They knew this about Jesus. And they wanted to try to leverage the love that Jesus has toward people to force him to deny the law, because if they could get him to deny the law, they had him. And then they could put him on trial and be done with him. 
Because they believed that because Jesus was so merciful and so forgiving and so grace-oriented that he was soft on the law. And Jesus was never soft on the law and he would never deny the law. In fact, he said it himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Jesus didn't deny the law. He didn't take the law away, as the theologians would call that antinomianism. He wasn't about that at all. He came to fulfill the law. You see, the law says this, the wages of sin is death. That means every sin comes with a death sentence. So Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The one who was without sin became sin on our behalf. He went to the cross. He atoned for our sins. He paid the full price for our sins on the cross. And, and, and the word for that is substitutionary atonement. He became my substitute so that when I placed my faith in the work of Christ on the cross, which we call grace, God's unmerited favor, I come under the grace of God and my sins are forgiven and my past is forgotten, my eternity is secured, not because I am somehow better or more sinless and not because Jesus has annulled the law, He fulfilled the law, but because I've now placed my faith in what Christ did, I am in a state of forgiveness. Are you with me on that? But the law is still in place. And you're like, well, how does it work then? Well, everybody who's not under grace, who's not in Christ, because they haven't given their life to Christ by faith, is still going to be judged by the law. But the Bible says the moment we receive Christ by faith and cry out to Him, we pass from judgment into life. And so Jesus is never going to deny the law. Uh, but these thick-headed, tired-headed old men just couldn't grasp the concept of grace, and so they set this trap. Verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. You know, this is a large stone area. Uh, the floor is made of stone. It's in the arid you know, area of the Middle East, and there's lots of dust and sand that's blown. See, I can really uh, resonate with this because I came here from a town called Bridgeport, Texas, which is northwest of Fort Worth, kind of on the edge of, of what was to be the West Texas desert, still in the north fork of the Trinity River area, still has trees, but, you know, uh, it's a pretty arid place. And, and on top of that, uh, they, uh, the main industry there was rock crushers. They had a big Texas Industries rock crusher and a Gifford Hill rock crusher. And the big uh, rock trucks were hauling the aggregate in and out of Dallas, kind of building Dallas and Frisco and all that stuff. And so there was always this fine layer of dust in the air. Not, not like this. I mean, you could literally, in Jesus, he'd been down and ride on it, Right. And it says he stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. And then I read that and I go, okay, well, John, what did he write? <laughs> he doesn't say. I'm like, come on, John. He wrote something. You, you, you took the time to say he wrote something. What did he write? He doesn't tell us. Man, what I'd give to know what he wrote. I wish somebody had had an iPhone and could have taken a picture and then we could sort out what he wrote. Because why do you tell me he wrote something if you don't tell me what he wrote, right? And so because of this, preachers now have the opportunity to guess. And you know, when you're a preacher and you're trying to fill time, you can just guess and guess and guess. Some say that he wrote, uh, the first time he wrote the names of the accusers, you know. 
they wrote, just bend down and start writing their names, which would be kind of somewhat unnerving because all of a sudden, as a, as a Pharisee or scribe, you thought you were anonymous, but he's writing your name. He's sort of pinning you to it. But you know, there's an interesting verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. And look at this last little part, the spring of living water. Isn't that interesting? I find it even more interesting because the very day before in John chapter 7, verse 32, Jesus told the people, I am the living water. Isn't that interesting? Do you find that? You don't find that interesting? Shake your head. I like to hear it rattle. Yeah. That's interesting to me. And the reason he talked about him being living water is on the last day of that Jewish festival, part of that festival was all the priests would gather up in their regalia and they would go to the pool at Siloam and they would gather up these large uh, jars of water and they would parade them through the city and up into the temple and then through the court of the women. And, and the women loved it. The women would light all their menorahs and they would fill their courtyard area there in the temple and they would be in the balconies and every and they would take all of that water from the pool of Siloam and pour it on the altar. And that happened, it was going to happen that evening. And the day before, Jesus said, I'm the living water, so it's a setup deal. Well, isn't it interesting that he's writing in dust, and he's talking about being the living water, and Jeremiah says that uh, those who will turn away from you will be written in dust. So maybe that's what he did. Maybe he, I don't know, maybe he wrote their names, you know, Levi Ezekiel and Joshua, Daniel, whatever their names were. But when they persisted, verse 7, in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and he started writing again. And, you know, uh, some guys, and maybe you've heard this before, they think the second time he wrote their sin by their name, you know, Levi, pride, Ezekiel, self-righteousness, Josiah, slander, you know, Daniel, envy, whatever it was. And C.S. Lewis makes an interesting point on this that I'd never considered before. He said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, that is sexual sin, as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things, and this is the part that interested me, there are two things inside me. They are the animal self, and those are the, those are the drives that, that cause us to pursue those fleshly sins, those animalistic cravings of lust and greed, those things. But he says, there's also the diabolical self. And he says, the diabolical self is, worst, is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. And of course, there's no, there's no distinction of sin. But it is interesting to me that these men whose hearts were filled with what C.S. Lewis would say, the worst kind, diabolical sin, are judging this woman whose heart was filled with the animalistic sins. So maybe he did that. Maybe he wrote their names and their sins. Something he wrote verses from the law. I mean, what are they doing, you know? What, what are these guys doing? Was this really about justice? If this thing was about justice, if, th if this thing was really about them wanting to enforce the law, then I have one question. You know what it is? Where was the man? 
right? Last time I checked, it took, took two to tango, right? If you're going to commit adultery, you always have to do that with someone else. So why is she the only one there? If you really care about justice, why weren't both of them present? Uh, some have thought, well, maybe the man, they knew the guy, or maybe they gave him a pass because he was one of them or, or whatever. For whatever reason, they let him off. And in doing that, they had perverted the very justice that they were trying to make a point of. So maybe he wrote something like Second Chronicles 19.7, Fear the Lord and judge with integrity, for the Lord our God does not tolerate perverted justice, partiality, or the taking of bribes. Maybe he wrote that. Maybe he just, maybe he just wanted to compose himself, you know, right? See, there's two things that really infuriate Jesus. One is mistreating people, and the other is hypocrisy. And these guys were doing both, so maybe Jesus just knelt down and kind of calmed down, count to ten or whatever, you know? I, I know that I wish I would do that more often. How many times do I wish I would have just composed myself? Maybe he wrote in the sand to calm down. You know, a wise man said, I've often regretted my speech, but seldom my silence. And so sometimes we need to calm down. But then I remember Jesus is God and he's always composed. And so I don't know. Truthfully, it really doesn't matter what he wrote. You know how I can say that? Because if it really mattered what he wrote it would be in the Bible. And the fact that it's not there tells me it doesn't matter. So I just wasted about four minutes of your life. <laughs> what mattered wasn't what he wrote. What mattered was what he said. Because what he said, he said to me too and to you. And look at what he said again. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. In other words, it's not about who should be judged. It's about who can be judged. Did you hear that? It's not about who should be judged. It's about who can be judged. And only the sinless can judge the sinful. I try to remember that every time I find myself with a stone in my hand. Verse 9. When they heard it, and by the way, again, this is why I know what he wrote in the sand didn't matter. Because it doesn't say when they read it, right? See, I, I was talking to Amy about this and I said, I don't know what he wrote, but whatever he wrote caused them to drop their stones and walk away. And then I read it more carefully. No, it didn't. What he said caused them to drop their stones and walk away. When they heard it, Look what happened. They began to go out one by one. You could hear the sound of stones hitting the stone. Beginning with the older ones, and I, I think that's because older guys tend to be more self-aware. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. You know, she just got her life back because we're not talking about just insulting someone. This was life and death. If this thing goes sideways, she's going she's gonna to die that day. So this is a woman who's just faced a firing squad and survived it. But would she ever get her name back? Would she ever get her respect back? Women, you can probably identify with this. I think we all can, but particularly you. Put yourself in her situation. You're so grateful that you didn't die that day, 
but how will you from this day forward always be remembered? You know, I think it's a beautiful thing that the Bible did not give us her name. Because after you get over the shock of realizing you're going to live, now you have to deal with the shock of what you have to live with. Will I ever, ever get my life back? And then Jesus gave that back too by forgiving her. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Women, where, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, I do not condemn you either. How would you feel if you were her? Grace is really amazing. And you need to receive that. You know, sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to receive forgiveness. I don't know, maybe it's because we have these recurring sins or, or maybe it's because we think what we did was so bad it's unforgivable, I don't know. But if Jesus doesn't condemn us, then we have to stop condemning ourselves and we have to allow ourselves to be forgiven. Here's three quick things that I, I wanted to lift out of this. First of all, being forgiven doesn't mean you were innocent. You got that? Nobody tried to say... She, what she did was, wasn't bad. Now, we do that today. And this is what's happening in churches and in culture is we're so eager to embrace this shift away from culture that we deny the truth of God's Word when, in fact, what the culture needs more than ever is the truth of God's Word. And I always say that a man's morality will dictate his theology, but what's happening today is the morality of our children is dictating our theology, and we're shifting our theology, and we begin... I had this guy one time who was in counseling with me because he had had an affair, and, uh, and he, he made this statement. He said, it was just a quick affair. It meant nothing. And I, I asked him, I said, does your wife believe that? And he said, No. And I said, well, God doesn't believe it either. There's no such thing as meaningless sin. And there's no such thing as secret sin. God doesn't, uh, grace doesn't mean that God missed our sins, that He somehow overlooked them. He knows our sins. Listen to Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You know, there's a movie that came out some years ago called I Know What You Did Last Summer. I've never seen it because I hate scary movies. I Know What You Did Last Summer. But it made me that it was an intriguing title to me because it made me think about God. And God's not saying, I know what you did last summer. God's saying, I know what you did the last minute. In fact, I know what you've done your entire life. I don't miss any of it. You know my goings out, my comings in. You know every bit of it. And so it's not as if Jesus just overlooked her sins as if He didn't see them. The beauty of grace is despite the fact that He saw what she did and despite the fact that He knew what she was guilty of, He forgave her anyway. And you need to understand that. And then secondly, being forgiven doesn't mean to go on sinning. Look, Look at what he said. Go from now on, sin no more. When you're forgiven, you're changed, and that means you stop doing what you've always done. I mean, for me, her life became so much more than the sad tale of an adulteress. I, I, I think her life became a testament 
to the power of grace. And that's what our world needs. That's what happens when we experience nothing is quite so contagious as a changed life. And you know what the world is looking for? They're looking for people who are truly different and changed. They want to know, is this thing for real? Because if it's for real, it's going to show up in how you live your life. You see, darkness needs light, and changed lives make the best light. So we are changed to bring change. Does that make sense to you? I'm changed to bring change. And then the third idea is this. Being forgiven means I become a forgiver. You know, when I'm going to give a talk like this, I like to go back and see what I've said in the past because I don't want to always repeat myself. And, and that's hard when you've been in a place, everything I know I've already said, right? And so I did a, a search on my computer of the word forgiven because I wanted to see. And what jumped up was a constant forgiveness. It just kept all the talks on forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And I kind of got mad at my computer because, of course, it was the computer's fault, not mine. And I said... Uh, not forgiveness, forgiven. And same thing happened. It came up forgiveness again. And then I looked at it and I suddenly realized the reason it was doing that is it's looking for forgiven, but it's seeing it in forgiveness. Because turns out the word forgiven is in the word forgiveness. Did you know that? I'd never seen that before. And only when you read it like that does it really begin to make sense. It's not forgiven, it's forgivenness, right? And so to be forgiven is to live in a state of forgiveness, if that's a word. And when you're in a state of forgiveness, then forgiveness becomes second nature. Because I've been forgiven, I should be a forgiver. And sadly, it's not always true. And when it's not true, that's when we take the other person's food at McDonald's in the drive-thru. Because we want vengeance more than forgiveness. Because it's easier for us to remember a hurt than to recall the blessing. I'll tell you the last story and I'm done. I've got, I had this friend who was a farmer. He's a member of my church. I love the guy. He was a dairy farmer. Um, just a guy making a living, and then they found oil on his land, and he became a rich dairy farmer. And then they came to him and said, we'd like to dig dirt on your land because his, his land had a bunch of river sand. Turns out river sand is valuable. I said, I said how, much, how much is river sand worth? He said, I'll put it this way. It was $3,000 a day, 365 days a year for three and a half years. So, you know, I, when I went home, I looked... Did the math. That's like three and a half million dollars plus. And I'm riding with this guy. We're driving through town. I'm in his truck. We look over and another guy in our church is in his truck. And, and this farmer says to me, see that guy right there? About 15 years ago, he beat me out of 70 bucks. And I was like, seriously? God gave you three and a half million dollars of sand and you're still holding a grudge against a guy that beat you out of 70 bucks. Are you for real? And he didn't like what I said after that. But you know, it's easy for us to focus that way. And we begin to focus on how we were hurt instead of how we were helped. And then we become bitter. And bitterness is a poison we administer to ourselves. It's a knife we hold by the blade. When you've been forgiven, then you forgive. Whatever they did, whatever the hurt, 
Now, here's the hardest part. You ready? Whether they ask for it or not. You see, mercy doesn't need an invitation. You give it. You know, when you think about it, everybody that left that day, that temple, everyone got changed, right? The self-righteous Pharisees walked in prideful and they walked out ashamed. The woman was dragged in ashamed and she walked out changed. And you know, I think the same choice is before us right now. How are you going to walk out of this place today? Are you going to walk out ashamed? Or are you going to walk out changed? It's really your choice. What's it going to be? Do you know what it is to be forgiven? Has that ever really happened? Have you allowed it to happen in your life? Why don't you allow that to happen today? Just give your heart to Jesus and cry out to Him. In just a minute, we're going to pray, and you can do that then. But do you know what it is to be a forgiver? Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe they may not even know they did. And you've just sort of held on to it. And by holding on to it, you've denied the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Are you ready to forgive? You see, if you're in a state of forgiveness, then you've got to be a forgiver. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this beautiful story. Thank you that you're so much better at forgiving than we are. Because, Father, we need your forgiveness every day of our lives. There are some that need the forgiveness from sin to come into a relationship with Jesus to be under grace. In this moment, Father, they cry out to you, God, here I am, take me. All you got, all I know of me, I'm going to give to all I understand about you. Just forgive me of my sins and take me. Father, we thank you that in that moment, salvation occurs. It's because of your grace. But Father, there are many of us who walk in grace and man, sometimes it's hard to give what we've been given. And so Father, we want to lay these these issues, these hurts, these heartaches. It may be a it may be an ex, an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend, an ex-spouse. It may be a boss. It may be a brother or a sister, a loved one. But Father, we don't want to hold on to it for a second longer because you didn't hold on to it with us. And so we lay it at the feet of Jesus right now and just heal us of unforgiveness. Thank you for this beautiful story. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.